Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Rightio, why don't you all find a seat? You can catch up at the end of the service. Go and grab a coffee that will be made for you, expertly made for you. We are, our, our coffee team just knows how to make international roast sing here at Ormo. <laughs> so go and get a coffee made for you at the end of the service and catch up with someone. Hey, I, I don't really think I need to introduce this guy anymore as a guest to our church. He actually attends a life group that's part of Gateway Ormo. He's been part of Gateway for a long time. Uh, Tim and Chris worship at our Mackenzie campus, but he's really more than a guest now. He's just really part of the extended Gateway Ormo family. We love having him here. For those that have never met Tim and Chris Hanna, uh, Tim and Chris came to Gateway about six months after I arrived, uh, and uh, Tim's been the senior pastor. That was back in 1997, and uh, Tim was senior pastor for 11 years, and uh, he is, if, if you don't like me as a campus pastor, Tim is completely responsible for me being in ministry. <laughs> 21 years ago, he took me on as an intern at Gateway, and I've been there ever since. So it's all his fault. But uh, Tim did an incredible job of leading our church. Uh, Tim and Chris and their family embraced me. I had a lot of meals at their house as I was a young adult scabbing food off people. And it really embraced me into their family. And since that, Tim's gone on to uh, be part of uh, Leading Compassion Australia as a CEO up until last year, where he finished up in that role and is now based back in Brisbane and uh, part of our church. And so we're just really stoked to have him come bring the word this morning. Would you give him a huge hand as he comes and shares with us? Thank you, Andrew. It's uh, great to be here again. I really love coming here. It's a good, good opportunity. And um, I am part of a life group, which I love deeply and uh, really enjoy that. It's in a bit of a hiatus, just waiting to start again for the new year, but looking forward to that soon. So uh, I look forward to that. And it's been good to have that journey with Andrew for, uh, seems forever, but it's a long time. And, and uh, Andrew's a great, great young pastor. Maybe not so young, any, not so young anymore. <laughs> younger, younger than, younger than me, and uh, there's a lot of people younger than me. So it's just good to be able to be here. I understand this is about summer favourites, and uh, I was thinking a bit about that when Andrew asked me to speak, and I thought about what makes a favourite a favourite. And I don't. Did you all get to vote? No. So it's just Andrew deciding what the summer favourites are. <laughs> So it's a, it's a kind of a weird thing. What is, it, what is a favourite for a speaker, for a preacher? What makes a sermon um, a favourite? Is it the most positive comments you get? Because sometimes when you speak, people say positive things. That happens sometimes. And uh, I, I remember when I was a, a, a pastor, just a trainee pastor at Bible College, and I was in a little church called Chelsea Church of Christ, on Fort Phillip Bay in Victoria, just outside of Melbourne. And uh, I would preach every Sunday. I've never done that sort of stuff before. And there was a, an old guy in our church who was the church secretary. And I say old, he was younger than I am now, but he was old then. And, and uh, he used to say every time at the door, we'd go to the door and shake hands. That was the kind of thing you did for everyone. He'd come past, he'd fall asleep every week. He'd fall asleep during the, not just show, Encouragingly, not just during the message, but he'd just fall asleep. And uh, uh, he would come at the door and he'd say, great sermon, Tim. Great message. And I was, 
I was nice in those days, and I just nodded and said, thanks, you know, appreciate that. Now I was, I'm less nice, I would say, how would you know? <laughs> I would say, how, how would you know? You, your wife has to nudge you every five minutes to stop you from falling off, toppling off the chair. That's what it was like. But um, is, it, is it about the number of positive comments you get, or is it on the opposite? Is it about the fewer negative comments you get? Is the sermon you get the fewest negative, got the fewest emails about, the fewest comments about, the fewest chatter about? Is it because of that? Is it, is it because it was the best immediate response? Let you into a secret. Pastors love immediate response. You know, the, we see afterwards somebody gets prayed for or comes to the front or stands up or whatever. We, we kind of love that because, it, you know, it somehow it feeds that unhealthy side of us sometimes called ego and uh, that's is it because of that that we that we we love that is it the most downloads from the website does that make it a favorite Um, is it a thought that just sits with you somehow you just feel better about that particular message and maybe other people do too I had a a letter that came through uh, a contact through social media in November was from a lady Um, who lives in New South Wales, and she said to me this, you don't know me, and she was right, Um, but when I was a teenager, in my late teenage years, and it was 1989, when most of you weren't born, she said, you preached a series on Galatians that I've thought about regularly since. Have you got the notes? She said to me. And I said, I I actually did look for them, and I don't, but but I had to write back for something for her. She said, now I've got, I've got five kids and I want to share those notes with my kids. And I said, no, I don't, I'm sorry, but uh, you know, thank you for, for... Is it just something that makes... If, if I knew what, what I... I could in, don't even know what I'd said, but if I knew what I'd said, that would probably be my favourite sermon. The fact that somebody remembers it 30-plus years later is pretty good. I mean, Andrew, who's a very good preacher, I believe, spoke last week one of his favourites. How many people remember what he said last week? Three of you, that's great. So, <laughs> so, so the fact that people can actually remember is, is, is not a bad thing. This is none of those. This is none of those I want to share today. Um, and I want to give you the origins of this because this sermon originated about six weeks ago, I've got to tell you. I was sitting down in my home just reflecting on Christmas, actually, and reading through some Christmas messages you know, Christmas scriptures, and thinking to myself, over the years, I reckon I've probably preached 80 or 90 um, Christmas messages, you know, you know, probably two to three every year leading up to Christmas, and, and I was reading a passage of scripture that I hadn't ever preached on before. And I said to Chris, if I ever get a chance to preach at Christmas again, which was very unlikely, um, you know, home pastors usually preach on Christmas, um, if ever I'd preach on that, but it's not going to happen. So I sort of got some thoughts together and put them down on a piece of paper, and then I thought, no, well, that's fine. It's what I thought. It's a passage that I'd never thought of, or part of a passage I'd never thought of before. And, uh, um, I, and so this is it. <laughs> um, I did get to roll it out for a, for a few minutes. I got asked just before Christmas for a church that had lost their their speaker if I would fill in and I fair shared some of those thoughts but this is it and it may never ever get another outing 
So I have no idea if it's a favourite, to be honest, and uh, I want to share it with you. And it comes from um, a passage of scripture that we, we know only too well, and you probably looked at it leading up to East, leading up to Christmas, and I did too, and it comes from the, 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 the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah was a fascinating character. He spoke both judgment and hope. He spoke judgment to the people of Israel because they'd fallen into idolatry and they started to fall, fall away and you know, do all sorts of things that were weird and horrible. And, and so he spoke judgment and said, look, you're going to be in trouble because I'm, I'm going to see that the, the Assyrians are going to take you over and then the Babylonians are going to take them and you over and, and you're going to be in a place of, of trouble. But he also gave messages of hope. He said, after that's all over, I'm going to raise up a light for you, a Messiah for you, who will be your hope forever. I'm going to do that for you. And as you know, in part of early Isaiah, it says, you know, I'll, I'll, a virgin will conceive and will give you a son and you'll call his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And, and so that all happens. Then a couple, a little bit later, you read this scripture. It's a, it's a well-known scripture. It's, it goes this way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Fantastic promises of hope. Fantastic promises for the future. And I want to focus on one of those promises that I've honestly never focused on 80 messages or umpteen Christmases before. But it's more than Christmas. And you know, Isaiah promised that there would be someone come who would be a mighty God, an everlasting God, a Prince of Peace. And they are three of those four promises. And they're the ones that are more spectacular and more exciting and they have a, a, a kind of a sense of majesty about them, a, a sense of splend splendor. I'll give you a mighty God. I'll give you an everlasting Father. You'll have the Prince of Peace. But I want to talk today about what I would call, um, this is a forgotten promise of, Jesus, of Christmas, what I would call the promise of a wonderful counsellor. I've never spoken about Jesus as a wonderful counsellor. Jesus who speaks to us, who counsels us, who knows our life inside out and knows what some of the things to say to address that inside out life would be. To know how to speak to his counsel, his words, his advice, the things that he says are so important. He's a wonderful counsellor. And you wonder why you don't focus. I wonder why I never focused on that part of it before. I've preached on that passage of scripture many times, but you focus on the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, and you kind of champion it, and you get people excited about that, but not the wonderful counsellor. And I wonder why it is. It doesn't actually sound as exciting, does it? Counselor doesn't sound as exciting as mighty, everlasting, Prince of Peace. But there's something wonderful about that. Maybe our thoughts of a counsellor aren't very good. Maybe you or someone you know got some advice from a counsellor sometime that didn't work or wasn't good advice or was ho-hum advice. 
And so the thought about somebody as a counsellor, the thought of a counsellor doesn't sound very exciting. When you, when you see a counsellor, it means you haven't got it all together normally. It means you need help. It means you haven't got it all under control. And we don't like that. So maybe the thought of a counsellor doesn't sound very exciting, which is why this promise of a wonderful counsellor doesn't shine through as much as the others, the ones we triumph, the ones we champion, and the ones we do. And if you wanted the full picture of Jesus as a wonderful counsellor, you've only got a, if you've got a Bible with red, red print of the words Jesus says, that'll give you the full counsel of the words he said. But he still continues to speak to us. But I want us to focus today on some of the counsel that Jesus gave and to certain groups of people that he gave that counsel to. But remember this, Jesus is still giving counsel to you and me. He knows us better than we know ourselves and he's still giving counsel to you and me. So I want to look at a few groups of people, a few tribes of people whom, whom Jesus gave counsel to and the themes or the thrust of that counsel to those groups of people. Let me look at the first one. The first one would be the, the tribe of close disciples. If you were a close disciple of Jesus, the counsel is to challenge. The words that he says to the close disciples are words of challenge. They are really challenging words. He comes to the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where you're going to start looking at teachers to pray next week. And he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you this, and he makes it tougher. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But, if I, but I say, if you're angry with someone without a cause, it's just the same thing. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But if you even look at someone that way, it's every bit of the same. You see, he makes it tougher. He gives a greater challenge to people. He says, You've heard that I've said, love your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The counsel of Jesus to those who are close by, these are his disciples he said that to. This wasn't to the crowd. These are his disciples, are words of challenge. Tough words. He says this to his disciples again at that time. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What, what I don't want, as he's saying, in paraphrase, I don't want tasteless disciples. Takes another analogy. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I don't want tasteless disciples and I don't want dim disciples. It's a challenge. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a challenge to be a follower of Jesus. He sends out disciples and he says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, take no money, no spare clothes, be extremely generous, travel light. You'll be rejected and ignored, but get over it. That's what he says. You know those words. As you go, proclaim this message. Kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take you with Take with you in your belts no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. That's a word to close disciples. It's a challenge. They're his words. 
And these close disciples at a point of time got really edgy. They got really kind of uh, caught up in the, in, the, in, the, in the zone, in the hub. Started to work, ask questions. Who's the greatest? And we're, we're, the, we're, we're the 12 with this great man. Who's the greatest? If you ever want to hear words of challenge... That time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Boy, what a question to ask Jesus. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes this lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom and whoever welcomes one child as this welcomes me. Jesus is a wonderful counsellor to close disciples, but it's a counsel of challenge. If you think being a disciple of Jesus is comfort and ease and it's all beer and skittles, incorrect. Incorrect. If you are a disciple of Jesus and you don't feel challenged, you're not listening to the counsel. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're not listening, you're not challenged, Sometimes we just think discipleship, just reading a few words in the Bible and praying a few prayers and that's what means a disciple. No, 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 no. You listen to the words of Jesus which challenge you. Jesus speaks to close disciples. Second group, if you like, is the crowd. Jesus often gives counsel to a crowd and the, the theme or the thrust of his counsel to a crowd is... Engagement. He wants to engage a crowd. He wants to kind of say things that will sort of galvanise and, and engage a crowd and make them curious and make them ask more questions. That's it. You know, Isaiah talks about a new kingdom that he will bring and that's generally the thrust of the message he brings to the crowd. He talks about generally the kingdom. Perhaps the greatest time he has with a crowd is a time when he's by a lake and the multitudes are so great that he has to get a, a, a boat to go out into the lake to expand his ability to speak to the crowd that's there to, to get maximum coverage. And as he's out there, he just speaks to that crowd about the kingdom to engage them, to, to talk to them about what it means to be part of this new kingdom that he's bringing to bear. If you read in, in Matthew's Gospel, he, he tells all the stories about that kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes out to sow seeds and falls in all sorts of soil. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who sows seeds and at the same time weeds grow up and whatever you do, don't pull out the weeds because when you pull out the weeds, you'll, you'll pull out the, so the, the wheat as well. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a mustard seed, one of the smallest things, but as it grows, it just grows magnificently. It says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. You can't see it, but it's growing strongly within. It's like that illustration Andrew used this morning as he started the service. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and he went and just hid that, hid that field so that he went away and Got all he got, he sold all he had to buy it. Kingdom of Heaven's like a pearl of great price. But when you find it, you want to give everything for it. He spoke to some of the fishermen in the crowd and said, The Kingdom of Heaven's like a net that gets thrown out like that. You see, he engaged the crowd with this 
kingdom stories, with stories of the kingdom, what it's like to live in this new world that Jesus himself um, instituted. What's that really like? What does it mean? And in that crowd, people, some people got perplexed about those stories. Some people got curious, asked more questions, gathered around, followed. That's what he does with the crowd. He never beats you over the head. To, never beats a crowd over the head. Said you've got to do this. He will engage you and invite you to explore further what it means to follow him. Maybe some of you here this morning are in that exploration stage. You want to find further. Third group of people, and there's five. It's always good to tell people how many, so you know how close to the end you are. The third group of people he deals with and he gives counsel to are religious people. They are the religious people of the day. And the way his thrust and theme with them is confrontation. If you're a really religious person, Jesus will confront you. So he should. The first time we see him talking to Pharisees, way back in Mark chapter 2, he gives a sort of insight to, to what it means. He says to them, why do you try and put old wine into new wineskins? Because if you do, you'll muck up the wine. It'll taste really bad. And you'll muck up the wineskins, they'll burst. You'll do both. Don't try and put your old religion into what I'm bringing you because it won't work. Don't try and put a piece of, to patch up a, a garment by putting a piece of unshrunk, unshrunk, it's hard to say that, unshrunk cloth onto a garment that's been washed many, many times and it's all shrunk because you'll make the tear worse. What he's saying to the Pharisees is there's a new way of living now. There's a new covenant relationship we have now. Don't try and bring your old religion into that because you'll muck it up. You'll ruin the wine and the wineskins. Sometimes we do that. We, we, we bring, we lead people to Jesus then we try and retrofit something old onto them. And he doesn't, he says you can't do that. He, 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 some of his most confronting teaching is to religious people, the religious police of the day. A little later on after that, he, he's talking to Pharisees who come to him and complain because his disciples on a Sabbath, on a Saturday afternoon, his disciples are plucking wheat, grains of wheat and eating them because they're hungry. Because they're hungry. Oh, you sh and they go ape with him. Why do you let your disciples do that? And we read this in Matthew 12. It says, when the disciples saw this, they said, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he, is, he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If, you'd not known, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus comes and he challenges two of the most sacred things for those religious people, the Sabbath and the temple. And he says, don't try and build those in to, to kind of what I'm bringing to you. 
It's not about Saturdays anymore. It's not about a special day. We're all special days. This is the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And as for the temple, that's what the, the whole, your whole religion's been based around. Let me tell you now, now you are the temple of the Spirit. He was pretty strong, pretty confronting to religious people. And then he goes right out of his way. He, by the way, just after he said that, he said, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You can imagine how that brings fury to people. You can imagine how the, that people, when the Pharisees heard that, that was the moment where they said, okay, now it's time, this guy's got to go. Because when you speak against the old, you're in the crosshairs. And he was. It cost him his life. And then he got really, really scathing. As time went on with the Pharisees, he got more and more confrontational. And he's speaking to a crowd in which there were scribes and Pharisees there listening and maybe just curling their mouths, wondering what, what he's going to say next, looking for another way to condemn him. So he gets to them and he says this, and I think the slide will tell you all of these, but it says, you know, you, you as... You as Pharisees, you look for the best seats in the synagogue. And when you walk in the marketplaces, you want renown in the marketplaces. Image management is so important for you. What people think of you matters so much. That's what you like. It gets worse. He says, you actually shut up the kingdom of heaven to men. You... you you, you cut out the kingdom. You're not about the kingdom at all. You're about your own kingdom. He says you pray long prayers, but you rip off widows. You do that. Just love doing that. You rip off widows, but you pray long prayers to look good. He says you work hard to make a convert, and when you make that convert, you take them down the same track you've gone down. He says things like... Um, you do religious duties, you tithe and do all the rest of it, but you don't show him mercy or justice to anybody. Then he really focuses and says things like, you are blind guides, you're like dirty cups, look great on the outside, but the scunge on the inside. You're like whitewashed tombs that look fantastic, but are full of dead men's bones. He says you're like a brood of snakes. Not good counsel if you want to be nice and you want to be approved by people. But to religious people, to really, to people who are just caught up in that sort of religion rather than the freedom of Jesus, this is confrontational. That's his counsel to confront. It's the sort of stuff that would get you killed and still does today in some countries, by the way. Some countries you preach that stuff to religious people, whether it's politically religious or religious religious or whatever, you'll disappear. It's a very dangerous time for Jesus and it cost him his life. And he will confront you every time you start getting really funky about religion instead of the freedom of faith. He'll confront you. 
The fourth is not a group, and I've just put it in there for completion because I'm not suggesting it refers to anyone, but he does have counsel for the enemy. He does have counsel for Satan. He does have words for him. And his words for the devil are just sharp and direct. He doesn't get caught up. He doesn't go down sort of rabbit holes, just very short, very short, sharp and direct. You know it very well when, when he's in the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil and, and uh, he's just very clear to the point. The devil says, Why don't, can you make these stones bread? That would look pretty good on your resume. He just says straight to the point, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, why don't you jump off the temple and survive? That's a tremendous trick. You can do that. You'll really show who you are. No. He says, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Not tempt the Lord your God. Well, why don't you just, if you just follow me, I'll give you everything. The whole world will be yours. What an amazing thing, promising Jesus the whole world. Pretty cagey. Away with you, he says, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. That's his counsel to the enemy and it ought to be yours. It ought to be yours. Short, sharp, direct. Very clear. There's one more group of people whom I want to focus on Jesus' counsel to and it's the desperate. People who are desperate. And to people who are desperate, Jesus' thrust and theme is compassion. He loves desperate people. People who have a, a desperation. No other way to go. No other place to go. They just need him. And his counsel is compassion. You see it time and time again. Jesus on his way to heal a girl who's very ill who actually dies before he gets there. But on the way, as he's walking, he's got an entourage by that stage because it's kind of, uh, he's got quite a notoriety. And there's a woman who's been ill with a society alienating illness for a long time, who we get the impression is crawling. She'd never have been there, but crawling because she touches the hem, not the shoulder, not the waist, but the hem of his garment which would have been street length. Just because she is desperate, just because she needs something, she's heard about him and she comes just to desperation to touch something belonging to him. Probably feeling guilty and bad because she should never have been in the crowd. He stops and at that point of time her world falls apart. He's noticed, he's heard or he's felt and he says these words, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. What an extraordinary thing to say. Never uses that word daughter again. And this woman has probably never heard that word daughter referring to her for many, many years, if at all. And now the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, in words of counsel, calls her daughter calls a daughter. You see, they're words of compassion to the desperate. Elsewhere in the gospel you find that there's a woman who has been set up, I think, caught in adultery, literally means caught in the act of adultery, 
brought, at best semi-naked, I would think, to the town square where the Pharisees are looking on. And if anyone's desperate, she's desperate because the, the penalty for what she's done is stoning, public stoning in the town square. She comes to Jesus and Jesus in that scene and he says, look, let anyone who's without sin, who hasn't mucked up, who's never done anything wrong, you throw the first stone and they disperse one by one. They leave the town square. And Jesus writes a little bit on the ground and he stands up and talks to her in her desperation for life itself. He says this in John 8, Jesus straightened up and asked a woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here's a woman who's desperate on the brink of death, who's given life and hope and purpose. There's a woman who was previously sick and ill and given life and purpose and hope. One story in the gospel has a, a young man who just can't even walk. He can't walk. He's got nothing. Except he does have four friends who see his desperation and who hear Jesus in a house but the crowd's really long. It's a long crowd to get in there. No room. So these four friends um, actually vandalise the home. Can I say that? Lay him down through the roof at the feet of Jesus. Desperate. And he says, firstly, your sins are forgiven, but because you know, people will question who I am, I'll, I'll just say you're, you're, you're healed as well. We read this, your sins are forgiven, rise up and walk. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. When you are desperate, Jesus is a wonderful counsellor. And you know, the great thing about Jesus, he says this, he lived on earth as, an, as a ministry that we know, a public ministry for three and a bit years. Probably around 33 when he died. But he said, when I go, I'll leave you another counsellor who'll be with you forever. In fact, he'll be in you forever. The spirit of truth. And now we don't have Jesus with us in person. He sits at the right hand of the Father. But we have the Spirit with us in person. If you're a close follower of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus, the Spirit with you, who speaks to us in that still small voice of his Spirit within us. He's a wonderful counsellor. Because he promised he would be. And the prophecy was he would be forever. That's the truth. I, I, I want to encourage you to... I, I wonder what God's counsel to you is. I wonder what his counsel to you is. What his counsel to me is. I want to encourage you to listen and hear the counsel of God. You know, many of us might have expected the, the turnover of January 31st to... Um, sorry, it's December 31st to January 1, to be a brand new year, it'll all be, built, all be beautiful, everything will be passed. It's not. There's uncertainty, there's, you know, all of that stuff. But Jesus has counsel for you. He has words for you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, there are words that are 
It will challenge you, I'll tell you. They won't be for just ease and comfort. They'll be words that challenge you. I hope you're not a religious person, sort of wanting to sort of just sort of shoehorn everybody into a certain form of religion. Because if you are, he'll confront you. And he'll cause you to open up to the freedom that Jesus brings. If you're in a crowd, maybe you're exploring what this faith might mean, what this faith in Jesus might mean, he'll want to engage you. There'll be stories of faith. There are some in the scriptures. There'll be people around you who have stories of faith to engage you. If you're part of that, if you're like that crowd that's just exploring. If you're desperate, there is compassion in the words of Jesus. If you don't know which way to turn, if you're not sure what's, what's up, what's not up, if you're not sure and you come to Jesus with that sort of desperation of life, Believe me, he will never, ever, ever, ever turn your way. He will always give you words, counsel of compassion. That's who he is. I reckon probably here this morning there's, there's probably people that represent all of that here. And, and uh, I just want to pray for you in a minute that you will hear, that we'll all hear Coming into this year, we will hear the counsel of the wonderful counsellor, that we'll be open to respond to who Jesus is, that he will engage us if we need to be engaged, that he will challenge us if we need to be challenged, that he will confront us when we need to be confronted, and he'll show us compassion when we need to see that compassion. That would be my prayer for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much that the promise of a prophet 600 plus years before Jesus, of a wonderful counsellor, was true when Jesus walked the earth and it's still true today because he has left us with another counsellor, the spirit of truth, to be with us forever. And God, I would pray that for those of us who are here this morning who are disciples, we would be open to hear the words of challenge this year and put ourselves out and allow you to make a difference that's new and fresh. Father, if there's any of us here today that are sort of seeped in just a religion, that you'll confront us, Lord God, and help us open up that to the the freedom and the, and the life that, that you have for us. God, I, I pray that if we're here this morning and we're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, that we'll hear those stories and we'll, we'll not close ourselves off for those, but we'll ask for freshness and newness in those stories. We'll explore more. We'll have a curious spirit. And Father, if there are some of us here this morning who are desperate, for whatever that might mean, if we're desperate, God, I pray that we'll call out and yell out and trust and take steps of faith and hear your words of compassion to each and every one of us. God, this is a new year. We would invite you by your spirit as you reflect among us this wonderful counselor of Jesus to do in and through us 
what you need to do. We pray it in his name. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.